as you're making your way back to your seats, if you'll turn to Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word, if you'll remain standing for uh, prayer. God, I'm so grateful for this morning, just in the songs that both John and Jared just sang to us and over us, and we sang back to you. God, I I pray that those songs would resonate in our hearts. Uh, We do have a high priest, even now, that intercedes for us, and you, Jesus, in this very moment are interceding for us, for our lives to be changed, for our hearts to be changed. God, we give you this morning, we continue to pray that your gospel would be proclaimed from um, this pulpit and every other pulpit. We pray for Holly Grove. We pray for New Vision. We pray for all the churches that stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. They would proclaim your word with great boldness, and out of your word, you would draw people to yourself. God, we at Palace Chapel cannot reach every man, woman, and child, but it will take a collective church, the Church Universal, to reach the lost. I pray that would happen. This morning, I pray it would happen for us in this place. Continue to lead us as a church, God, as we dedicate all of our lives to know you and to make you known. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We've got a lot to cover this morning. We're going to try to cover two chapters. So um, put on your seatbelt. We'll go into some hyperspeed. We're coming to the very end of this uh, book here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12. So here's the book, just if you haven't been with us. Uh, Nehemiah is written to uh, by the man Nehemiah the prophet, and he's giving his memoir of what it was like uh, for him to go back into Jerusalem, the holy, holy city, and rebuild the city and rebuild the walls. Nehemiah is in the book in the Old Testament, and if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about God over and over and over again redeeming God's people back to himself. We've seen that at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve sinned and that God then came and brought redemption through to them and for them. And then we see Moses. Moses led his people out of, uh, out of slavery into the promised land. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God drawing his people to himself and then his people going into disobedience. And that's the pattern of the Old Testament. And that's where we have it here, that the people of God had come into the promised land and they had sinned. And so because of their sin, and we know this, because of sin, God always brings his wrath and judgment onto sin. If we have a holy God, God must judge sin. He does that throughout the Old Testament. He does that throughout the New Testament. Now we, in this room, are like the people of the Old Testament. We've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And there must be judgment or there must be a Savior. That's what we'll see here this morning, that there is a Savior that is going to save his people again. He sent the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians to judge God's people. And here we are in about 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, if you know that name, that comes out of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar had wiped out the city of Jerusalem and taken the people of God into exile. That's Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are God's people taken, taken away from God's land into exile. And so that's where Nehemiah is. Nehemiah, if you remember from week one, he's in the king's court uh, doing what he does, being the cupbearer, and word comes that the people of God had gone back into Jerusalem, and they noticed that the walls and the temple were totally destroyed. Nehemiah's heart is stirred for that, has a passion to go back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. That's where we'll pick up today. And so we've been journeying chapter by chapter. And so if you turn back to chapter 6, chapter 1 through 6 is all about Nehemiah going and build, rebuilding the walls. The end of chapter 6, the walls have been re- rebuilt. Remember that? That Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls through the work of God in 52 days. Nehemiah chapter 7 is just all the people that had come back into to repopulate the city and if you remember in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, it's a, even though the people had come back, there still weren't enough people in the city, in the holy city. Then we go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, remember the people of God come to Nehemiah and to, to Ezra and say to them, we want to hear the word of God. They have a desire 
to hear the word of God. Ezra stands up before God's people and for about six hours just reads the Old Testament to them, verse by verse by verse. In reading the word of God, their hearts are quickened to bring them to confession. Remember, Pastor Phil spoke on that in chapter 9, that the people of God heard the word of God, the word of God convicted them of their sin. In chapter 9, they repent of their sin. Then what we looked at last week was that now that God's people had repented, gone back to God, they make a covenant with God to stay in relationship with God. And so it'd be real nice to end the book of Nehemiah there, right? So here's God, he rebuilt the walls, he gave them a place to worship, the people gathered back in the city, the people heard the word of God, the people confessed their sins to God, the people made a promise to live for God. So it'd be real nice to end the book there. So what is chapter 11, 12, and 13 in the book of Nehemiah for? Because here's the deal, and we looked at this through the study on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just hearing the word of God. It's not just confession of the word of God. It's just not making a promise with God. It's now that we will be God's people to live distinct lives marked out for God. It's how they will now live their journey as a promised holy people. So the question for us this morning is how will we live and how are we going to live now that we've come to this place to worship, we've seen a holy God in the holiness of God, we've made confession to him, we've made promise to him, now is where we put our feet to the floor and we begin to live out what God has told us through his word. And so God builds his people to live lives distinctly devoted to him. Let me say that one more time. God builds his people to live lives distinctly devoted to him. And so here in chapter 11, we see that God repopulates the city. That's what's going to happen here. God begins to repopulate the city. He's going to use a distinct priesthood to do that. He's going to use a distinct celebration and dedication of the walls to do that. And then in the end of chapter 12, he uses a distinct temple service to do the ongoing work of the temple of God, the worship of God. And so for us this morning, the application is this. Am I and are you ready to live lives set apart from God? If you look in Nehemiah chapter 11, uh, verse 1, he says this, And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Underline the word holy. Holy simply means uh, set apart. So now we're going to see God sets apart his people to live a certain way. And how are they going to live? Here's the beauty of it. And we're going to get to this in the passage. When God calls us to holiness, he doesn't expect us to do holiness on our own or for us to achieve holiness on our own. We cannot live holy lives. Amen? We need somebody or something to empower us to live holy lives. We cannot live holy lives on ourselves, of ourselves. And so for you and I this morning, before we go on to the rest of this passage, am I ready to live a set-apart life for God? Am I ready to conduct my affairs in all that God's commanded me and called me to? Or will I continue to what uh, Romans says, to continue to conform to the patterns of this world and take shortcuts? See, there's no shortcuts in holiness. It's either all-out holiness or all-out sinfulness. There's no shortcuts. You can't live a holy life and participate in things of the world. And we're going to see that here in this passage. And so, it's going to take a large amount of sacrifice on our part, the same way it did here in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 on their part. This passage, these two passages are broken down into four divisions, and we'll, we'll get to there. The first one is this. God empowers his people to obey his word. Say that one more time. God empowers his people to obey his word. That's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. That we need to be people of God that are wholly devoted to God and to God's word. God has given us his word to show us how to live out being a holy and set apart uh, person or family or church. How are we going to do that? We'll see in this passage that God is the one that empowers us 
to obey his word. You and I in and of ourselves cannot and will not obey God's word. We must need the spirit of God in us to enable us and empower us to be obedient to God's word. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you will never be obedient to the things of God. It's impossible. How come? Because he says in, the very, in Isaiah that even my most righteous things apart from Christ are but filthy rags. So I need a Savior to empower me through obedience. Say it one more time. We need a Savior to empower us to obedience. Let's look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 11. We'll look at several verses. Follow along with me. Uh, it starts in uh, verse 1. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who were willing, so underline that in your Bible, willing and offered to live in Jerusalem. Verse 3. These are the chiefs of the providence who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of, of Judah, everyone lived on his property and in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived a certain sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. We're going to start seeing that this chapter, chapter 11, is all about the repopulation of the city. We'll get to the reason that it must be repopulated. Let's go to verse 7. So he lists all those names. He goes to verse 7 and says, And these are the sons of Benjamin. Let's go to verse 10. And these are the priests. Let's go to verse 15. And these are the Levites. Let's go to verse 19. And the gatekeepers. And then in verse 22, And the overseers of the Levites. So, what is the reason that we have chapter 11 and most of chapter 11 are just some names we cannot pronounce? It's about 22 families that we can't, I can't pronounce. I could try and butcher it. It's going to sound horrific. But what is the reason that God puts in here to show us and how God shows us that he enables his people to obey his word? So we have a genealogy to show us how God does that, how he empowers us. But you've got to go back to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. This is the reason that we have chapter 11. Remember, it says this in chapter 7, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people were in it were few, and no house had been rebuilt. And so, remember what had just happened in chapter 10. The people of God come and make covenant with God and say to God, hey, we're going to promise to do all that you've taught us to do. So what is all that they've taught them to do? It goes back to what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Uh, we'll go to 39. It says at the very last part of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. So if the people of God are not in the city of God, then the temple of God is going to be what? Neglected. Therefore, they could not be obedient to do what they had just promised to do in chapter 10, verse 39. They need to go back into the city of God to repopulate the city so that they can keep their promise to God. To what? To not neglect the house of God or the worship of God or enabling the people of God to have a place to worship God. They needed people to live in this city, to populate the city, to care for the house of God. It's not the house of God, it's not the walls of God, but it's really the people of God to enable the people of God to have a place to come and to worship. And so what did that look like? Two things we see. First, moving back into the, to the city was going to take a huge sacrifice. See, here's the people of God, they're all over the countryside all over having their land, having their crops, having their way of living, having their way of making money, ha having freedom in the countryside. And so they had to make a sacrifice to go back into the city to do what God had required them to do. There must be sacrifice for us when it comes to obedience. So the people of God said, okay, we will sacrifice our way of living. They moved back into the city. When they moved back into the city, they didn't have as much land to make as much money. So it required a huge deal of sacrifice to be obedient to God. Remember, 
not only did it take a huge sacrifice, but it was going to take a huge amount of courage. See, to be obedient to God, there must be a sacrifice to God, but there must be a courage to obey. How come do we know it took courage? Look at what we see. Three different verses. Verse 6, it says, All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were what? There were 468 valiant men. Underline that in your Bible. Verse 8, it says, And his brothers were men of what? Valor. In verse 14, And their brothers, mighty men of valor. That word means it was courageous men that moved back into the city. How come it took courage to move back into the city? Well, remember that the city was underpopulated. Therefore, being underpopulated, they didn't have the security they had as if it was totally populated. Remember, moving back into the city would take a huge amount of sacrifice and a huge amount of courage to live in obedience to God. This was a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous city. It would be like, I might get in trouble for this one, but I'll say it. Moving to uh, Detroit or Memphis for us. Those are dangerous cities. And what makes them dangerous? It's not the people that makes them dangerous, though it is the people. It's the lack of the presence of God and the gospel that makes those cities dangerous. If the gospel of Jesus Christ were to invade cities, then the people in the city would begin to have a heart change. If a heart change happened, then behavior would change. So it's going to take courageous men and women and sacrificial men and women to move back in to our cities to reclaim the cities that Satan has stolen from us. That's true for us here at Powell's Chapel and in our community. Now, we might not live in a dangerous city like Memphis or a dangerous city like Detroit or a dangerous city like Harlem, but we do live in a dangerous city that is very godless. How do we know that? I hope yesterday broke everyone's heart in this place when they read the paper. We had our first ever gay pride march in Murfreesboro yesterday afternoon. How come? Because the people of God are not invading the city to reclaim the city. We need, we must be courageous men and women to take the gospel that changes lives into broken places wherever we go. And it comes through what we said at the very start. God will empower his people through obedience. And how do we see that? How do we know that? Because we read on in that first passage that God will empower his people. God sends his people to where God calls his people to go. Remember, we've looked at this through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that whole study through the Sermon on the Mount was calling us to live lives that were uniquely different than the world around us. But it will always take courage and sacrifice to obey God's call on your life. You see, when you get down to the very last few verses in, or the very first few verses in chapter 11, they began to cast lots to see who was going to go into the city. And so even though they cast lots, it was God's empowerment of the people to obey them even when they saw that their uh, straw, straw had been drawn. They had to obey. They don't obey with complaints. They obey courageously and sacrificially. God does not want our begrudging submission. He wants our total obedience. And so the question for us today, do I rely on God's word to dictate everything that I do in my life? It's God's word central to my life. If God empowers me to obey through his word, then I must know his word to be empowered by his word. You, you see, I, I can't just um, know it without application. James tells us that. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. The only way to be doers of the word is to know God's word for yourself, not for what I have to say about it. You see, the people of God had spent time with God. Remember back in chapter 8, six hours they had heard from God's word over and over and over and over and over again. 
What would it look like for us as God's people to spend six hours in God's word? Would it transform us? So the question is this, what does God's word tell me about the next step that I should take? It will take a lot of boldness, a lot of courage, and a lot of sacrifice, but the promise is God will empower me. I often get this question when I sit with people. I wish I knew what God's will was for me, or I wish I knew what God wanted me to do next. Well, you'll know what God wants you and know what God's will for you is if you're in God's word. When you're in God's word, God's word will reveal to you exactly what to do next. We've heard it on Sunday night. The preacher said that we've been listening to on Sunday nights. He said, when I become a, a follower of Christ, then every decision I make will be made in the lens of what Christ has called me to do, even by what shoes I put on, by what car I drive, by what house I live in, by what job I have, that everything will be dictated through Christ, but it will come through his word. God's word is very black and white. And obedience to God is very black and white. It just takes a lot of courage and a lot of sacrifice. And so this is true. The encouragement for us is this. This is how God built his people. So be encouraged through his word. And this is the question that you and I must ask. Is God building me in this way? If God's promise is that he'll build me up to follow him and to do all that he says through his word, am I asking that of God? Or am I asking that of a self-help book? Am I asking that of a TV show? Or am I really getting personal with God to say to God, what is it that you would have me? Therefore, he will always bring his promises true. Here's the next thing that we see in this passage. Chapter 12. We just got through chapter 11. We'll go to chapter 12. God supplies his people to endure through trials. Now, I know that doesn't sound very encouraging, but it's true. We see this in chapter 12, verse 1. Now, there's a list of priests and Levites. So in verse 1, it says, These are the priests and these are the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the first priest who had brought about 50,000 people into the city 100 years before Nehemiah had ever come on the scene. That's how the word of uh, the devastation of the city got back to Nehemiah was because there's about 50,000 people already here in Jerusalem seeing the carnage that happened and word got back to Nehemiah that we need help to rebuild the city to have a fortified city so that we can worship God. And so in the first several verses through 26, it's just all the least and the um, Levites who came with Zerubbabel back in Jer Jerusalem. Then in verse 10 and 11 is the list of the high priests uh, up until Zerubbabel all the way to Nehemiah. So it's just a list of after uh, priest and Levite, after priest and Levite, after priest and Levite. And so we may come to this passage and think, why would God show us all these priests and Levites in this passage? Well, here's the thing of the priests and Levites in uh, the Old Testament. The priests and the Levites or the prophets, are the ones that had the word of God. The priests, the Levites, the prophets are the ones that brought the word of God to God's people. And so we see that God will always supply what people need in their time of trouble. The people of God needed to hear the word of God, and the word of God in that time came through the priests, the Levites, and the prophets. And so God is supplying them with all that they need through the word of God to be present with them. And so here's some things that we see. And we see this throughout the book of Nehemiah. The first one is this. Trials will come. Let me say that again. You and I will face trials. But the promise goes back to God will supply his people through the trials. Remember, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself, all the things that happened in Nehemiah, all the devastation that was going on in Nehemiah. God supplies his people with what they need. Remember Nehemiah, how did God do this in Nehemiah? They faced trial after trial after trial after trial after trial. 
Right, you remember that? Do you remember as we've journeyed through just this one book in Nehemiah, all the trials that he faced? Remember, the first trial he faced was the fear of going before the king. Remember, the king is the one that said to Ezra, hey, we're going to stop building the wall. So here, Nehemiah's got to go back to the king that he had already said to Ezra, hey, we're going to stop rebuilding the wall. And so Nehemiah, his first right out the gate, decided he had to face a trial of, man, this is what God's told me to do. Now I've got to go face the king to see if it's okay with the king. It wasn't like you go to the king and ask for something. If you go to the king and ask for something and they didn't like it, your head could be cut off. Like to go to the king and ask for something of the king and ask all that Nehemiah was about to ask for was serious business that he could literally die over. So that's the first trial. The second trial is this, that now the king says yes, and now Nehemiah, all he has is uh, a bucket and some bread. Remember, that's all that Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He had no supplies. He didn't have Ace Hardware. He didn't have uh, Walmart. He didn't have Home Depot. Nehemiah just had him and God. So the next trial was, hey, you've got to go and you've got to ask the king to help you rebuild what the king already said he wasn't going to rebuild. I mean, throughout this story, we see trial after trial after trial after trial after trial. He gets to the city. Remember, he gets to the city and he looks at the city and sees the devastation. He can't even get around the city because there's so much rubble around the city. And his heart is broken. Right? And then you remember he begins to rebuild the wall. And what happens? His enemies come and begin to make fun of him. Another trial. Then they begin to attack him. Remember, they, he divided the men up. Okay, you're going to rebuild while you protect. And when you're done protecting, you're going to build. And so he had this system in place. Another trial. And then he had conflict, not only from without the camp, but then inside the camp, his own people began to be a source of discouragement to Nehemiah. Do you remember when we talked about that? So over and over, just here in Nehemiah, we see this man of God who was devoted to prayer did not have an easy day of it, an easy 52 days. He faced trials. And you and I will face trials. But will we be like Nehemiah? The thing that marked Nehemiah's life was not his resilience, was not his dedication. It, it wasn't his intellect. And if you remember back through the first six chapters, over and over and over again, the thing that marked Nehemiah's life was that he was a man of deep prayer. Because he believed that God would supply all that he needed. And he went and begged God of it. He remained humble and sought God in the midst of his trial. What would it look like for us to be a people of God, to submit to God and go to God in our trials and say, God, you deliver me. I know in my own life how often I'm in the middle of a trial and I panic and I go and fix the problem myself. And it has never worked out well for me. When I go away from God and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and beg God, God, get me through the trial, and I quit trusting in a holy God, and I go on my own to fix the problem, it always gets worse. Always gets worse. But Nehemiah was a man of God and sought God through prayer. And then what happened? God supplied his people with what they needed to endure. Not what they wanted, but what they needed. Over and over again, God gave favor to Nehemiah. God gave material to Nehemiah. God gave protection to Nehemiah. God gave desire to God's people for God's word. God, in chapter 9, gives forgiveness to the people. And in chapter 10, what we saw last week, God made a promise to continue to be their God in the midst of all of their trials. Here's the beauty of this. Here's what we have. That though we will face trials, and you may be in a trial right now, you may be crying out to God right now in the midst of your trial. Here's the promise that we have throughout Scripture. You are never alone in your trial. There is a holy God that walks with you every step of the way in your trial. We have a holy God that walks with us in the midst of our trial. 
Here's the truth of it. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. This is uh, Jeremiah, the prophet of God. The prophet, if you ever read Jeremiah, it's pretty discouraging. Here's Jeremiah is called by God to go to a people that are never going to listen to the words of God. And he dedicates his whole life to these people. And there's really no conversion in them. Yeah, that's got to be a trial. That's got to be great discouragement. And yet in Lamentations chapter 3 where Nehemiah is lamenting over the people of God and bringing his broken heart in the trial to God, he says this, and I wonder if we could say this as a people to God this morning. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can you and I, in the moment of our trial right now, can we claim the way Jeremiah did, the way Nehemiah did? Oh God, in my trial, great is your faithfulness. I don't know what trial you're going through. All I know is what God's word says. In the moment of your trial, you're not alone. And because you're not alone, great is God's faithfulness to you. There's no promise it's going to get cleaned up. There's no promise that it's going to get fixed. But the promise is that God is faithful throughout it all. There's no promise if you have someone that you love that's dying of cancer. There's no promise they're going to be cured of cancer. There, there's no promise if you're seeking a new job that you're going to get a new job. If you're seeking a house that you're going to get a new house. The only promise is that God is with you always through it all and that he remains faithful in the moment of your biggest crisis. Amen? That's all that Nehemiah knew. And he trusted that the God of the universe would empower him to obey his word and supply every need that he had through his trial. But here's the beauty. We see this list of priests over and over and over, all these names of the priest. But yet, still, there's one more thing. God supplies us with the great high priest. You see, that's what Jared just sang to us. That we have a great high priest. Let's turn really fast to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 7 first. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25 says this. The former priests were many in number. We can look at chapter 11 and 12 in Nehemiah and see that then there was priest after priest after priest after priest. You look through the Old Testament, ongoing priests. See what the priests did. They lived and they died. They lived and they died. They lived and they died. It says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever and ever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost parts those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession with them. Flip back to, Nehemiah, or to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16. This is what Jared just sang to us. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who passes through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You see, verse 15 says, Every way that you're tempted, every trial that you've gone through, Christ himself, our great high priest, has gone through the same trial. But here's the promise, yet without sin. That's what makes our high priest different than any other high priest. He's gone through the trials we've gone through and has not sinned. Let us, verse 16, then with confidence, highlight that in your Bible. What's our confidence in? Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in a risen holy Savior, our great high priest. That is what our confidence is in. Let us with that confidence draw near to the throne of God. Through him, Jesus, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercessions for us. Sorry, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do we draw near with confidence to the throne of God, the great high priest. You see, believer, Christian today, you have a great high priest. 
If you are a Christian today, no matter what trial you go through, there is the great high priest that is interceding for you in this very moment as you sit in these pews. No matter what you're going through, no matter job loss, friend with cancer, wife with cancer, uh, any disease that you may have, a lack of money, God says through Hebrews, let us draw confidently through Christ, who in this moment as we draw near to him is praying on our behalf in the midst of our trial. Do we believe that this morning? Do we believe that to be true? God cares for you in the midst of your trial. He provides you with everything that you need in the midst of your trial. He loves and cares for us as his children if you are a person and a child of God this morning. But here's the other part. You may not know Christ here this morning. You may not know who this high priest is I've been preaching about that John and Jared sang to us and over us. You may not know him. And so I'd ask you this question. Do you know Jesus? This Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. We just read about it, that he came and he was sent by God to redeem God's people and lived a holy, sinless life so that you and I would not have to and could not live a holy, sinless life. And because of his sinless life, he made sacrifice on our behalf for our sin and took it to the cross and taking it to the cross. He died for you. He died for me and gives you new life and new hope and, and a new way to live life when we place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? Do you, as the unbeliever, believe that in this place, that you do have a great high priest this morning? Not only does God empower his people to obey his word, not only does God supply all of our needs, he also does this in verses 26 through 43. God makes his people rejoice in his work. Let's look at verse 27 of chapter 12. Right, so here we are, we're at the, the kind of culmination of this whole book. We're here that the walls have been built, the people of God had repopulated the city. They look around the city and they what? They bring dedication to God for the walls. And the dedication of the wall, this is verse 27 of 12. They sought the Levites in all their places to bring to Jerusalem to what? Celebrate. The dedication with what? Gladness and thanksgiving and with singing and cymbals and harps and lyres. Here's this huge celebration that's happening. Here they finally come to this culminating event in the book of Nehemiah and now they finally have a place to worship God in the safety of the walls to worship a holy God and they just celebrate that moment. But it only comes through God's empowering of his people to celebrate that. We go on in verse 43 at the end. They offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced. Here it is. For God made them rejoice. Our joy comes through God and God alone. God made them rejoice with great joy. Verse 43 is where it all culminates, that God makes his people rejoice. I have a question for us this morning. Do we rejoice at God's work? Do you, do I rejoice at God's work? Do I see all that God is doing? Here's all that God's done in this city, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, repopulating the temple, and they, through God, rejoice at all that. Do we rejoice at all that God's doing? The next thing is this. In their rejoicing, it must meant that they were joyful. Are we joyful Christians this morning? Do we have the joy of the Lord in our hearts this morning? Are we joyful people? Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis has to say about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires or our joys not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What is your joy in this morning? Is your joy in your car? Is your joy in your spouse? Is your joy in your house? Is your joy in your education? Because if that's where all your joy is, and I'm not saying not to have joy in your spouse. I love Jenny with all my heart. But if my joy stops with her, it falls short of all the joy that God has to offer to me in and of himself, the Lord, the God of the universe. Are you and I joyful Christians that rejoice in the work of God? You see, even for us this week here at Powell's Chapel, I don't know about you, but I know for Casey and for Zach, they rejoice in the Lord today. You see, on, on Thursday night, their two-year-old boy fell 10 feet and, and hit his head on concrete. Like, do you and I get what that really means? Like, if you fall 10 feet and you bang your head on concrete, that concrete doesn't give. And I can only imagine for Zach, and I can only imagine for Casey, the terror they must have went in. I, I saw them at the hospital, and he said, man, the scariest part is we heard no thud and we heard no cry. You know how petrifying that must have been? And here's Zach, and here's Casey. They, they run down to the little boy, and their boy's unconscious. He's not moving. And they rush him to the hospital. In the hospital, they do all the examinations. It's never good when you go to one hospital and they tell you to get to another hospital. And so here they go. They get rushed to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. That's not a good sign when your child gets rushed to one of the premier children's hospitals in the world. That's not a good sign. And for the next several hours, they had no answers. And all they could do was trust that God would be with them in their trial and put their hope in Him. And then news broke that he had a concussion and had a fractured pelvis, and that's all. You see, that isn't all, man. He just fell the right way, and he just hit his head the right way, and, and they got him to the hospital in the right amount of time, and the right doctors are there. No, the work of God happened way before uh, young Maverick fell in his head. The work of God was in progress to save the boy's life. Do we rejoice in that this morning? Or are we just say, yeah. No, man, we rejoice with you, Zach. We rejoice with you, Casey, because the work of God is happening in our midst. Let us, Pals Chapel, not miss that today, that God is at work in our church. We see evidence through Little Maverick. And so when he comes the next time he's in church, we celebrate all that God's doing. We look at young Maverick as a miracle. God is at work, amen? I pray that we celebrate that with Zach. We celebrate Maverick, and we celebrate Maverick when he comes in. Because we're not celebrating him. We're not celebrating them. We celebrate the holiness and the power of a risen God who saved the little boy. God is working, people, here at Powell's Chapel. We are not a dead church. The holy God resides in our midst, and we have evidence of that two days ago. Let us not forget that. Which will always lead us to this. Always lead us to this. God made them rejoice. I pray that God makes you rejoice by hearing that story. Do we rejoice this morning? And if not, I pray that we would do this. We'd go to God through application and we'd go to what Psalms 51.10 tells us. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. If you can't celebrate with Zach and you can't celebrate with Casey, the life of Maverick, then you need a clean heart. There's something off with your heart. If you're unable to celebrate and you, through application, must cry out to God, God, make me have a clean heart. Verse 12, what do we need? We need him to restore the joy of our salvation. Psalm 23, 3 says this, Oh God, restore my soul. 
Lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So this morning, if you cannot celebrate and you're not a joyful Christian and you don't see all that God's doing, cry out to God this morning, which will lead us to the last part of verses 4, 44 through 47. When we begin to celebrate God and we rejoice in God, when we rejoice in the work of God, God moves his people to give to worship. You see, that's what happens in these last few verses in 44. Then now the service of the temple go on. And here's two things. We'll wrap up. Two things. God moves his people to worship. God repopulated the city so that the people of God would come to worship. They did it in two ways. They first gave obediently. You see, when we hear stories about what God is doing and how God worked in Little Maverick, that ought to move our hearts to give even more than we're giving to the work of God so that it wouldn't just be young Maverick's life that impacted, but the world around us would have that same impact because we believe in the holiness of God and people need to hear the story of Maverick, not for the story of Maverick, but man, there really is a God that's powerful and mighty and saves. And what he does is even saves more deeper than Maverick. He saves souls. He saves people from going to hell. And see, when we begin to rejoice in that, and we begin to see God work in that, man, we will want to outgive God so that God's glory will be known through all the world. And so they gave obediently. See, giving ought to be out of obedience, not out of obligation. I don't care about your money. I don't care if you never give to this church again. I don't care if I never get a paycheck again. What I care about is that if your heart is changed, you will want to outgive God. See, giving comes from the heart. Giving doesn't come from a wallet. But it comes from our rejoicing in all that God's done and being reminded of all that God is doing and what God wants to do. We've looked at this passage. We've looked at this series. It's all been about God wanting to rebuild his people for the purpose of God to make God's renown known through the world. That was the whole reason Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem so that that people group would have a place to worship so that the people outside of the kingdom of God would hear these people worship and they'd come to want to know what they were worshiping. Is that true for us? Because if that's true for us, we will be obedient in our giving. Here's the deal. You can never outgive God. It's all of his to begin with. He just gave it to you to steward. Here's the last one we see. We see that this is how we know that they gave obediently. It was required of the people. We saw that in verse 44. This is like the worst day to have no voice. And then in verse 44, how did they give? It says, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They brought joy. They gave joyfully. When you give and how you give, I don't mean your wallet. I don't mean your money. But I mean your lives. I mean my life. Do I give my life to God's work in obedience and I do it joyfully? Do I have joy in giving all that God has given to me and offering it back to God? Do we believe this morning that God is rebuilding his church for his purposes? And I don't mean the church universal this morning. I simply mean do we believe that to be true here at Powell's Chapel? Is God doing a work in us to rebuild us as the people of God to reach the lostness that's all around us? You see, it's going to go all the way back to where we started. God empowers us to be his people, to obey his word. If you are not in obedience to God today, it's because of your disobedience, being empowered by his word. So as we close this morning, if you know Christ this morning and you are acting in disobedience to God by not saturating with yourself in God's word, ask that just like David did, ask that he would restore the joy of your salvation. Ask that God would renew the right spirit in you this morning. The altar will be open. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, 
And anything that I've said, God has used to prick your heart to say, oh man, I don't know this God, but I want to know this God. If someone brought you, talk to them. If not, come find me, find John, find one of the deacons. We want to share with you the greatest gift that God ever gave to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, that we have power, that we have life, that we can give all that we have back to him. And so for us this morning, do we believe these things? that God will empower us to be obedient, that God will be with us through our trial, and that God will supply all of our needs, that we have a high priest, and that we rejoice in the work of the Lord. Let us pray. God, I pray that this would be true for us here at Pastor Chapel. God, I'm not grateful for what you did to Maverick and allowing him to fall, but oh God. I'm so grateful that you saved that boy's life. God, I'm grateful that you would entrust that story to us as your people, that we got to really see your power on display Thursday night and Friday and today. God, I pray that we'd be a people that would be empowered by you to obey your word, that we'd be a people that would remember that you're with us every step of the trial. Oh God, that you sent your great high priest, Jesus, for us. And God, I pray we'd be a people that would rejoice at your work. God, change our hearts. Change us, oh God. Break us of our sinfulness, God. Great, break us of our self-will, God. Lead us, God, to you. Tell me, God, in my own life, where I fall short of your glory, God. I fall short of being obedient to all you've called me to, God. God, I'm a sinful broken man that is in desperate need of a savior every day. Lead us, God. Lead us as your church. God, allow us to be a joyful people because of all the work that you're doing. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen.